So, uh, if you are new, we are a church plant. We have been we've been meeting uh, formally, publicly on Sunday mornings for just over a year, and we've been working through the Gospel of John. We've been doing this series called Jesus Is, and this morning. Uh, throughout the, the duration of our time in John, we'll like occasionally kind of pause and do a message on something else or a little, little series on a different topic. And for today, I really feel like I've put a message on my heart that's not in the Gospel of John. So we're going to take a pause and we're going to look at the fourth chapter of the letter of Philippians. It's a pretty well-known chapter, but I think we're going to get some like fresh insight into what that chapter is all about. So I'm going to go ahead and pray and I'm going to actually ask that you pray for me as well. You pray that God would help me this morning because I, I need his help. So, um, Father, thank you uh, that you are good to me. Thank you that you're good to us. I pray that you'd help me to preach uh, this message this morning with boldness and with love, with a compassion. It's like I'm, I'm a sinful, messy, broken man, and I need grace, and we all need grace. And so I pray that you'd help me to te- really teach and preach with love and with boldness because I think there's something powerful here for us this morning. God, I want to like preemptively, publicly repent of seeking applause before I even get started. And I want to ask for you to help me find my identity entirely in you this morning as I preach. It's your name I pray. Amen. All right, so some of you may know that I was born on the island of Puerto Rico and didn't move here to the United States until I was, well, whatever. Puerto Rico is kind of part of the U.S. Didn't move to California until I was in the third grade. And so when we moved here, the nearest family that we had geographically was actually in Colorado Springs. Uh, my dad's cousin was just like happened to be stationed there uh, in the army, and he was there with his family. So we went to visit Colorado Springs one, I think, late fall as a family. And I mean, I was like nine or 10 years old. So where do you think the first place Puerto Ricans go when they go to Colorado Springs is, when they arrive at the Rockies? We went to Marshalls to get <laughs> layers for our layers. Uh, so we could really layer up. One pair of long johns to cover the other pair of long johns, basically. So I, was, I remember being at Marshall's in Colorado Springs with my family, and I'm looking for you know, layers to wear. And I find some, and so I head to a dressing room. And I was 9 or 10 years old at the time. And most people don't know this. My wife knows this. When I go into a changing room, I'm in the zone. Like, I want to see everything from every like, angle possible. I want to like, try different types of lighting. Like, I could not be more... I could not be more focused than in I am in the changing room. And I don't know what happened. I think this must have been the world's biggest marshals because my mom couldn't find me in it. Uh, she had them page me, which is always an adventure with my name because it's spelled different than it's pronounced. So I'm in the zone, like trying on, you know, this thermal, whatever, and they just page and they go, jerk, jerk. Please come to customer service, Jarek. So obviously I don't hear any of that. I'm not responding to that. My name is spelled Jarek, but it's pronounced Herrick. So like I'm not, I'm only listening for Herrick. And so being in the zone, I don't hear it. So I'm blissfully just trying on thermals in the changing room while outside there's like a missing child situation unfolding. And I'm trying on some tennis. So I'm, I'm happy, I'm blissful. My mom is anything but, understandably, right? naturally. Put yourself in my mom's shoes just for a second. You can't find your kid. You're in like a frozen tundra like, that feels like a million miles from home. Like you are looking at first, kind of calling out, but with every minute that passes, your anxiety starts to rise. Your heart starts beating faster. You start talking louder. You start pushing through the racks of clothes. 
I'm looking underneath to try to find my kid. You, you, know, like you, you even start to push through people that are trying to help you. You're like, it gets to that point of desperation and anxiety. And you try to keep it together, but it's kind of like, um, have you ever seen a dam with a crack in it? It's like water starts to seep out. And before you know it, like the crack becomes multiple cracks and a lot of water starts to seep out, and then it's just like this flood of fear and anxiety that just comes out of the human heart. And maybe you're here and you don't have kids and you've never lost a kid in a store, and I certainly hope we never do. But I think we're all familiar with fear and anxiety. We all face situations that totally overwhelm us and make us feel weak and vulnerable and powerless. Things like big decisions, figuring out your calling, financial pressure, relational issues and turmoil and problems that you have, dealing with temptation. So a lot of us feel pressure to perform on the job or in school. There's big expectations placed on us. We deal with bullies. We deal with rejection. We deal with abandonment. We deal with rebellion. We deal with infertility. We deal with suicidal thoughts, feelings of worthlessness, illness, loneliness, loss, grief. Just listing this off is probably making you anxious right now. And here's the thing, though. One of my absolute favorite writers once said, we have really good reasons to be anxious if you just think about the world. But today we're going to look at some scripture that tells us that even though we do have good reasons to be anxious, we have better reasons not to be. And we're going to talk about those reasons today. So if you have your Bible, turn over with me to Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7. The verses are going to be on the screen if you don't have a Bible this morning. Let me give you guys a little bit of context. So we haven't been in the, in the letter to the Philippians, but this was a letter that was written by an early church leader. His name is the Apostle Paul. And he planted a church in Philippi, which is in modern-day Greece. Now, Philippi was a hotbed of patriotic nationalism. The 4th of July, I think, is in four or five days. So this isn't actually all that hard to imagine for us right now. Imagine, like, little kids holding up Roman Empire flags, you know, like retired soldiers being honored in a military parade, Uncle Sam, pictures of Uncle Sam, but it's Uncle Caesar. You you kind of get the picture. It's that kind of thing. So that's the backdrop of this letter. As one New Testament scholar said, which I think is so helpful to understand the whole letter of the Philippians, he said, Paul wrote to encourage the Philippians to find their whole identity in Jesus and nowhere else. So in the verses today, like, it's important to keep that in mind as Paul shares very practical steps on what to do when you face fear pressure, anxiety, and the temptation to look somewhere else besides Jesus. So I want to, as, you know, as we dive into the text, I just want to ask the question, like, what gives you anxiety? Like, what worries you? What's making you anxious this week or even today? I want you to have that in mind as you hear these words. These are the words of the Apostle Paul who met the risen Jesus, who was commissioned by Jesus to go take the good news of Jesus out into the world These aren't platitudes. This is hard-fought wisdom from the Apostle Paul. Here's Paul's prescription for your anxious soul and mine. Philippians 4, 4 to 7. says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everybody. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your requests to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all All understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's weighty, concentrated verses. And so to a group of people who faced similar pressures and fears that we face today, 
with respect to following King Jesus and temptations to not follow him with certain areas of our life, Paul effectively says gratitude, prayer, and remembering whose you are can bring the peace of God into any situation. So if you're taking notes, we're going to unpack that today. So if you're taking notes and want to follow along, here's kind of the two points for this morning. When you're stressed about anything, there's kind of two things that you can remember that will help you recenter your life on God's peace. Number one, God is with you. And number two, God will never leave you. God is with you. God will never leave you. You'll notice that this is probably familiar to most people if you've been around the church for any amount of time. It is not rocket science. It is not complex. I'm not going to wow you with insight this morning. But at the same time, like, we don't really believe that God is with us a lot of the time. We're going to talk about that. So we really need this. This is actually very important. It's not sexy. Uh, It's not a sexy teaching, but it's needed. So point number one, God is with you. I want to look really quickly at Philippians 4, verse 5. It says this. Paul says, Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Graciousness is also translated gentleness. And what does this verse mean? So the Philippians were enduring some hard times. If you've ever like, done a study on the book of Philippians, Paul planted this church. Where was Paul writing this, church from, writing this letter from? Prison. Imagine this. Tom is in prison right now, and, he has, and he's writing letters to us to encourage and strengthen us. That's where they're at. How might we feel? A bit anxious for Tom, right? Might be feeling, Tom, by the way, Tom is not here. He's not in prison. Hi, Tom. <laughs> he's not in prison. He's just on vacation. But imagine if he went to prison and went to jail for preaching about Jesus. We'd be stressed about that. We'd be anxious. And so were they. And on top of that, because of this kind of like patriotic, nationalistic area that they were in, they were actually facing fears about persecution and rejection from their neighbors. And so it's not hard to imagine them like kind of nervously asking like, what's going to happen to Paul and what's going to happen to us? If we continue to follow Jesus, if we continue to to proclaim him, what might it cost us? What what might our neighbors do? And so I take this verse and these verses really, let your graciousness be known to all, like the Lord is near, to really mean that Paul is saying like, as you face hard things, don't forget whose you are. Beloved children, God is near. You're not orphans fending for yourselves. You belong to the gracious King Jesus. Now be who you are. So specifically, in the face of like potential persecution, some of the implications here are like, don't retaliate when you're wronged. That's not what Jesus did. Don't take matters into your own hands. That's not what Jesus did. Don't freak out as though you're on your own. Jesus is with you. Look to him for everything. Again, this is not rocket science. This is not new for anybody. Probably, if it's new for you, great. It's not going to be new for most people. But it's one thing to like know what it says, and then it's another thing altogether to experience this, to experience the power of the Lord being near. What happens if we forget that God is with us? We'll become the opposite of gracious. Verse 5 says, let your graciousness be known to all. So the Greek word here is apparently like really tough to translate, and... So what helped me the most to understand what this gracious, gentle word means was when somebody basically said, like, the opposite of what it isn't. 
It's not being excessively self-concerned. Not being excessively self-concerned. So here's my point. If we forget that God is with us, we'll be excessively self-concerned with our own well-being and safety. We'll be stressed. We'll be frantic. And we'll take matters into our own hands. And when we feel threatened or powerless or unable to change things, it's going to go poorly for us. It might manifest in some really small ways. Maybe it's nail-biting or toe-tapping. But it's probably going to look like also more noticeable things like outbursts of anger. But underneath, there's actually deep anxiety and insecurity. I'm speaking from experience here. So think of it this way. If we forget that God is with us, we'll be like rich people who are convinced that we're poor and live accordingly. We're going to become what I call identity poor in daily life, even though we're identity rich in reality. So, I'm relatively... Okay. I'm relatively new to this valley. And I had never heard of this phenomenon called being house poor until I moved here. So apparently this means like you spend, it's possible to be house poor when you spend most of your income on your home. So you may actually have a net worth that's like in the tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars, but in reality, which is a fortune, by the way, in like the context of the global, the world, the history of the world, that's a fortune. But in reality, our daily lived experiences, we're scraping by. And in the same way, we can be identity poor when we forget God is with us and we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, but today our lives, our experience, our identity, identity poor meaning like we're just scraping by in life. So what does this look like? Let's get specific. It could look like stinginess with your time, with your resources or money, because you need to look out for yourself since clearly God is sleeping on the job. could look like an eating disorder because you have to look a certain way to feel worthy and beautiful and wanted even though God already calls you his masterpiece because he sees you and when he sees you he sees Jesus you're hidden in him if you forget that God is with you you'll be anxiously looking to maintain appearances sort of like superficial not transparent maybe kind of fake everything is great everything is awesome you might be a real-life Ron Burgundy. Everybody, come see how good I look. Your social media might basically become that. We have like a 200, how many people in America? 300 million Ron Burgundies. But we're not laughing anymore at ourselves. Like we're taking ourselves seriously. It used to be a joke. Now it's like serious business. Now if you forget that God is with you, you'll be afraid of what people think of you. You'll just be tempted to run and hide when things get scary. You'll become a spider or whatever. Little critters hide. If you forget God is with you, you'll be self-reliant. So what that'll look like is you'll struggle to ask for help or prayer. Or if you do, you'll feel guilty or ashamed because you should have it together. If life is all on you, it's really hard to acknowledge you're weak because if it's all on you and you're weak, where do you go? If you forget that God is with you, you'll tend to be defensive, an attacker, you'll be judgmental because you don't believe anyone will vindicate you, defend you, or acquit you. So you have to lobby the court of public opinion hard to clear your name. 
or to condemn the other party. All the while, the God of the universe is near. What is his verdict over your life? Not guilty. If you, you guys see how important this is? See how heavy this is? Why this matters to understand that God is with us? How it drives this anxious identity, like searching for, for identity? Again, I speak as one who, I, I get this. I'm just over it. I'm over it. I'm over this impoverished identity. If you, got, if you doubt that God is with you and you're suffering, you're going to be tempted to envy others. You're going to become cynical and maybe even apathetic because we forget that God is with you. And if anyone understands what it's like to suffer, it's Jesus, the God who's with you. What, which one of these examples resonates with you? And are you, do you see how this is so far beneath us as God's people? To be identity poor? So what would it look like to be identity rich? As I was thinking about this, I was like, we, we, I have to look at the life of Jesus. I have to look at the life of Jesus. His entire life, he was identity rich. Jesus, before he did any ministry, what did the Father say over his life? And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Fully pleased, in the Greek. Before he did a miracle, Jesus knew whose he was, and he found his identity in what the Father thought of him. Before he did a thing. I got a text this morning from Lisa Lachlan. She was like, I think the Father wants you to know that before you do anything today, he's pleased with you. It's like, the Father was applying this to me. He wants to apply this to you too, this morning. I needed that. Thank you, Lisa. When Jesus, after he started his ministry, he came under criticism. Think about this. How do we handle criticism? Typically, we get defensive. We don't like it. I know this. This is me. I don't like being criticized. I'll find something about you. You know? There's a pretty good inner lawyer that comes out when criticism comes. So Jesus starts to be criticized about healing on the Sabbath. So in John 5.17, you know his response is? My father's working. So am I. Back off. My father's working. Jesus knew who he was because he knew whose he was. And he was able to respond with criticism, with grace and truth and not defensiveness. How would you like that? Would you be interested in that kind of life? I certainly would be. On the night when this is going to, if this doesn't blow your mind, I'm not doing my job. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, do you guys understand what Jesus was facing? He was facing the ancient equivalent of the death penalty, what's the, the electric chair. I couldn't think of it. He was facing the electric chair, essentially. Um, when we wear like crosses around our necks, we, a more like appropriate modern equivalent would be like a little electric chair. Because that's what Jesus, you know, it's like if Jesus died today, he would have probably been put on an electric chair. So that's where Jesus is going. How did he get there? Somebody falsely accused him, one of his friends, and he knew that was coming. What would be on your mind? I'll tell you what would be on mine. Get out of there. Everybody, hide me. We're going to go. We're going to sneak off into the night. I'm going to be down here. You guys are all going to cover me, and we're going to get out of here. What was Jesus doing? What was on his mind? John 13, 3 to 5. 
Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from his meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Washing someone's feet seems real weird right now and awkward. And just why would you do that? In the ancient world, what was on people's feet? Feces, blood, guts. That's what was on their feet. And so Jesus, even though he knew he was about to be arrested, about to be brought up on bogus charges, and then put to death in the Roman equivalent of the electric chair, he was so secure in, what he, in who he was, so secure in his calling and his identity, that he <laughs> took off his outer garment and basically got into the... He did the most, menial, the most menial task imaginable. He did the equivalent of like cleaning everybody's toilet. Because like, that would probably be like a, a similar modern-day equivalent for us of washing someone's feet. One by one, he cleans their toilets. It's nasty, grimy, and yet an unforgettable way to model the kind of servant leadership that he wanted them to embody. But it was way more than a leadership lesson. Jesus was pointing forward to the reality that he alone can wash away the filth of sin from our lives. He was pointing forward to that too. There was multiple meanings to that. Now, if you believe in Jesus, here's the good news. What's true of him is true of you. You belong to him. If you believe in him, if you put your faith in him, you belong to him. You belong to God. Not only that, like you're clean, you're, you're washed, you've been raised to a new identity, to new life in the heavenly realms. Not entirely sure what that means, but it sounds pretty cool. And not only that, like Jesus sent his spirit to live in you. The presence of God, listen to this, the presence of God is now available to all people. God is, God is here. He's near. He's with you. So even though we often live with this impoverished identity that leads us to, to be anxious, this morning I really do believe that God is offering you and me an opportunity to become identity rich by believing that he is with us, remembering really more than anything else, and that he's pleased with us because of what Jesus did. You are his. You are loved you are not alone. You don't have to live in a continual identity crisis and suffer the anxiety, the worries, the stresses that come with that impoverished identity. So I want to ask you the question, what worries you? What's got you worried? Jesus is with you because Jesus died for you. And he was raised for you. Now you're hidden in him. How would that change your experience of anxiety? How would that change how you handled your anxiety? My first point is this, simple. Again, not rock and science. God is with you. If you walk away with nothing else from the sermon, just remember, God is with me. That's my first point. Number two, very similar, God will never leave you. God will never leave you. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Say this, very famous. I think this is actually, I think I looked it up once, and they had like the Amazon top 10 most highlighted, uh, whatever, in your Kindle, like the most highlighted just text of any books. I think this is like number eight. Like the first seven, I think, are Harry Potter. And then I think this is like number one from the Bible. These words, like you probably know them. You probably have them memorized. Philippians 4, 6 to 7. By the way, if you don't, I'm so glad you're here. 
Because you're like, if you haven't been in the church, great. Like, you have less to unlearn. And you can just take this in. <laughs> Philippians 4, 6-7. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What's this passage saying? I take this to mean that God is open for business. He wants you to come to him with anything that's on your mind. Anything. He says not to worry about anything. So if that dead patch of grass in your front yard is bothering you, tell him about it. Whether it's big or it's small, like God wants you to share it with him. If it matters to you, it matters to God. I think for us, oftentimes with Jesus, it's not that his promises are too small, it's they're, they're too big for us to really believe. He's with you and he cares. What is this passage not saying? I think this is important too. This passage is not saying that God only wants you to pray about big things, like global missions or world hunger or planning churches or big health problems. I think he wants prayer for that. But this is also, this is also not saying that what you're going through isn't as serious as what, as what so-and-so is going through, so you just have to deal with it and you can't pray about it. You can't ask somebody to pray. That's not what this is saying. Because doing that is a subtle way of downplaying God's goodness and over, overstating your own strength. Then the cost is, if we just hold stuff in, we'll eventually be anxious about whatever we don't bring to God because we're going to find out that we can't control it on our own. He wants you to pray about everything. That little, like, loose snaggle tooth that your kid's, your kid's going to, you know, lose and swallow any minute, he wants you to pray about that. He wants you to pray about the math test that's coming, because algebra's hard. He wants you to tell him when you're in a tough place in a relationship or a job. He wants to hear it all. Yes, the God of the universe wants to hear what's on your heart, so he can guard you. And then there's one New Testament scholar who wrote this, and I thought this was brilliant. The way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. See that one more time. The way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. Everything. Okay, I think it's important. What does it mean when Paul says that the peace of God will guard your heart as you bring things to, as you bring everything to him? So the word that's translated guard actually re refers to a military garrison stationed inside a city. So I kind of like, I take this to mean that God's peace will be like troops protecting our hearts and minds when the steady stream of fears and lies and worries come flying at us. Why does this matter? It means you don't have to fight anxiety alone. You're not on your own. Our anxious hearts find their rest when God himself is stationed around them. If God is stationed around your anxious heart, like you can find rest. When I went to Colorado Springs that, that time, like we stayed around a military base, and guess what I wasn't doing? I wasn't stressing. Like We were as safe as you could be. You had to be checked at the gate, Nothing, nothing was coming in or getting out. Like, we were safe. Would you like to have God, like, garrison your heart? Set up his troops of peace around your heart. Who doesn't want that? He's offering you that this morning. I think that's something that we should all want. But here's the thing. This is not automatic. God promises his peaceful presence to all who make a few important shifts in their life. 
What ushers in the peace of God? Well, I haven't mentioned this verse yet. Verse 4 says rejoice in the Lord. And the idea there is to be glad about grace. Be glad about grace. This isn't like being glad about your circumstances. It's being glad about grace in the Lord, what Jesus has done for you, who you now are in him. We deserve nothing and we've been given everything. Let's dance kind of thing. So verse 5 says, you know, let your graciousness be known to everybody. So, so he's, God's like telling us, like, let go of that excessive self-concern by remembering that God is with you, not holding it in. You're not an orphan who's fending for yourself. You're a dearly loved kid with the world's best dad. Go to him. That's what he's saying. So we, 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 we're glad about grace as we're praying, as we're going to him. We let go of, like, thinking that we're on our own. And then lastly, like, very importantly, we need to tell him what's actually on our hearts. We actually need to open our mouths and say it. There's an honesty required, a vulnerability before God to say, here's where, here's where I'm at. And it can be scary because then you're like, what if God doesn't, what if nothing happens? There's anxiety again because we don't believe that God is with us. God's not promising to change your circumstances. That's not what this passage is saying. What is he promising to do? He's promising to like station his troops around your heart as you give yourself to this sort of lifestyle, cultivating a lifestyle of gratitude for his grace, of asking him for what you need and thanking him. Thanking him that you have it and I have it, we have it better than we deserve. If you want a little handle for today, walk away with this one. Thank you, Jesus, that I have it better than I deserve. You might not believe that today, and that's okay if you don't, but the reality is every one of us has it better than we deserve. By nature, we're children of wrath. Said, this is, every, you know, this is like a bumper slogan that no one ever wanted to make. Like, we're children of wrath. Like, nobody wants that because it's uncomfortable, it's awkward, it's weird. But that's the truth. Are we comfortable with the truth that we deserve God's wrath, but instead we're alive today? We are breathing. We have food in our stomachs. We have clothes. Sometimes multiple layers if you're in the Rockies and you're Puerto Rican. Like, he's, and he's giving you, most, most importantly, Jesus. A new identity. We don't deserve anything and we've been given everything. Seriously, let's dance. Where, where, where's like our joy? Like, we've been given everything. This isn't complicated. But I'm also going to not, I'm going to also say that I don't promise you that this is going to be neat and tidy in your life. Jesus himself, let's look to Jesus always. Jesus himself suffered horrendous agony in the garden, even though he was a man who prayed about everything and gave thanks. So this is not like you're not going to suffer. This is not what this text is saying. So otherwise, there was something deficient with Jesus, and we know that isn't true. So it's not a solve-all, this isn't a silver bullet for your life. But at the same time, I don't have a doubt, I don't have a reason to doubt that God will provide protection and safety for your heart as you give yourself to cultivating this lifestyle of gratitude, of prayer, of remembering whose you are, of telling him what you need and thanking him for it. I have no reason to doubt that he's not going to change your life, even if he doesn't change your circumstances.
Very important to note. What happens if you don't have God's peace stationed around your heart? I had some time to think and chew on this and pray about this, and I really do think that some of us need to be reminded this morning that if you choose not to ask God and not to have his peace stationed around your heart, what will happen is you will choose another form of protection. You'll look to politicians to keep you safe. Or your religious performance. How am I doing with God? Am I doing everything he said? Your, our military might. Our bank accounts. Our retirement. Our jobs. Our stuff. Entertainment. Distraction. Anything. We'll do anything to protect ourselves from pain and suffering. You might even look to another person and they might become your entire world. A human you might feel safe when you're with them and anxious when you're not. Whatever form of protection you choose, if it's not God's peaceful garrison stationed around your heart, it will fail you. And then what? Anxiety. The cycle of anxiety continues. We're, I believe we're all going to choose God's protection or seek it elsewhere. I think those are the choices we have in front of us. God's protection or seek it elsewhere. So I want to ask the question, like, what are you functionally looking to provide, what are you functionally looking to to provide you with protection and peace today? What are you putting your hope in? If it's not Jesus, what is it? There's more. When we, there's a risk. There's real risks here. If we choose another form of protection, it can and will lead to compromise in your life. There's this great movie that came out 20 years ago called The Matrix. If blood and curse words offend you, you might not want to watch it. But it's a really interesting movie. And if you haven't watched it, in the movie The Matrix, there's basically like this group of people who have discovered that their world, what they know about the world, is actually a computer program created by machines. Billions of people are plugged into this program and they have no idea that machines are using their bodies for energy. Here's the thing, though. There's a small contingent of people who discover the truth and they escape the matrix. And what do they do? They devote their lives to tell other people in the matrix the truth so that they can be set free. One of these other free people, one of these people that's been freed, his name is Cypher. Cypher was technically free. He knew the truth. He had been set free, but he was anxious about his own well-being. Life was harder as a free person. It involved sacrifice, danger, courage. It was a life oriented around putting people's needs before your own. Eventually, he couldn't handle it anymore. He couldn't handle the fear that came with this dangerous mission, so he cut a deal with the machines for protection. Anybody remember this in the movie? He cut a deal with the machines. He sold out his band of freedom fighters. Cypher abandoned ship. He went AWOL so he could return to the safety of a comfortable, easy, successful, pleasurable life in the matrix. Cypher is a picture for us of how anxiety can lead to compromise. I'll give you one painful example from my own life. If you are trying to anxiously protect your reputation your image, what people think of you, make sure people like you, the time will come when you will compromise your mission here on earth to bear witness to the grace of Jesus. This is how it's happened in my life. 
for eight years, I worked at a law firm. Um, I was in the working world for eight years before I came on staff as a pastor a few years ago in San Diego. And I was a part of a very small research team at, a, at this law firm where we all just sat in like a big room together. And these were very smart. I don't know how I got this job. These were like really smart people, very articulate, very articulate, highly educated. I enjoyed them. One day, Eric, a Christian buddy of mine who was on the team, I think he was the only other Christian on the team, he asked me in the middle of the workday, just when it's quiet, in front of everyone, what does it mean for Jesus to be our mediator? Just like, I, I froze. This is a secular workplace in a major city. If I answer that question honestly, I might alienate the dozen people I have to sit with day in, day out. They might consider me weird, intolerant, narrow-minded, bigoted, unsophisticated, stupid, or who knows what else. If I say, well, Jesus is the only way to the Father. He's the final sacrifice for our sins, and we can look to no one else. So what did I say? Uh, I just want to finish up my project. And I stopped the conversation cold. That's what I did. I was anxiously protecting myself from the threat of rejection. I went EWOL-like cipher. I abandoned the mission in that moment to bear witness to Jesus. And I've thought about that moment since, like, I wonder how things would have been different if I had been committed to seeing myself as a missionary at the workplace that I was in and praying for boldness in those moments, building, like, that garrison around my heart in advance. I think it could have gone very differently. My heart could have been guarded. I might have felt the fear but pushed through it, as opposed to caving and not being honest. Here's the thing. I'm not alone in this. This is us. This is anybody in this room. How might you be tempted to compromise this week? What might you sacrifice if the garrison of God's peace isn't surrounding your heart? Remember, there is good news. None of us have to compromise. Nobody has to compromise. God's with us. He won't leave us. You can run to him. You can tell him what you need. You can thank him that he's given you far better than what you deserve. Can I have the band come up? I'm going to close with a story from the life of Homer Simpson. <laughs> this is from a book called You Can Change, Outstanding Book for Processing Emotions Through the Gospel. Tim Chester it says this, There's an episode of The Simpsons in which Homer and Bart drift out to sea in a dinghy. Homer wastes their water washing his socks and eats all their rations. Classic. When a rescue plane flies overhead, Homer fires a flare, but it hits the plane. At one point, as they find themselves in a thick fog, Homer's in like a hysterical panic. We're doomed! We're doomed! He cries. Then the fog clears and a boat drifts into view. Are you okay? Someone calls. But Homer is a typical man who wouldn't admit his need. So he shouts back, Yep, everything's fine. The fog closes in, the boat disappears, and Homer returns to his panic. This morning, Jesus is asking you through this text, Are you okay? How are you going to respond? Will you say, Everything's fine, and walk out of here and go back to your life of anxiety? Or, Will you be honest with Jesus, who knows everything about you anyway, who's literally like, who wants to change your life, he wants to transform your life, 
He wants to garrison his peace around your heart. This Jesus, will you be honest with him and tell him everything you need? And then thank him that he's given you way better than you deserve. This has the potential to change your life. It's changing mine. This week, I felt anxious often. My kids were really tough to lead. My household was really hard to manage. This message was tough to prep. I felt afraid at various points. One night, everything came to a head because my son Josh was like, I will not brush my teeth, Dada. Every parent goes through this at some point or another, right? For me, however, I felt unusually stressed, upset, and angry. And I later just spent some time like processing, what was going on in my heart? Why, why did I react that way? And I discovered that there's this deep fear that just lingers underneath the surface. If I can't get my, teeth, my kids to brush their teeth, then I can't manage my household well. If I can't manage my household well, then I can't be a pastor. I felt afraid because I felt like God has clearly called me to pastoral ministry, but my kids are about to disqualify me by not brushing their teeth. <laughs> this is my weird inner world. You're welcome. What, what am I going to do? I can't go back to the law firm. I don't like the corporate world. So much fear and anxiety over a toothbrushing. But here's what I discovered. My anxiety was an invitation to get to know who I am and discover, rediscover, really, whose I am. In my anxiety, I didn't believe God was with me. I didn't believe he was the one who qualifies me and the one who's working out his plan in my life and Josh's life, my son Josh, and my family. I didn't believe he would care if I prayed to him about teeth and nighttime routines. It hit me through this scripture that I was working on that I've, I really do have it all wrong on a daily basis. It says, don't worry about anything. Pray about it all and thank God for his grace. I started to do this regularly during the week. And I'm one week in, so it's very early, but I'm telling you, I feel different. I feel like I'm slowly changing. It's not perfect. This is going to take a lifetime to, to work out, right? But now I feel so much more aware of my honest need before God and the fact that he wants me to come to him. That I can be vulnerable with him and tell him what's really going on. I can be grateful because I have it so much better than I deserve. It's my seven-year wedding anniversary today. I don't deserve a... I don't deserve, like, a beautiful wife. I don't deserve that. I don't deserve the kids I have. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to be a part of this family. I ran from God. I literally ran from God my whole life through religion and then irreligion. I ran from Him, and He's brought me back. He's, he's, he's with me. God is with me. This week, I've realized like he's with me and I can talk to him and he's answering my prayers. His peaceful presence is with me even now. And he's bringing me practical help in this season through you. My family's been having a hard time. People have been doing our laundry, bringing us meals, watching our kids, doing our dishes. Thanks, Jenna. I mean, he's been taking care of us. And I'm seeing he's really with me. He really cares. I think he wants to show you that today.